You could kind of get up around Monlisone, and then you would have to go through this weak area to get away, and then and then if you went far enough north, it would get better. And then getting back was always very challenging, and that was a very big theme of this contest. I just came back from coaching at the National Juniors competition in the Netherlands, and it was a lot of fun. It is a very relaxed competition that so many pilots fly as their first competition. This is Soaring the Sky, a Glider Pilots podcast, coming to you from the Mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and bringing you great soaring content from glider pilots all over the globe. We now join Chuck and our guest pilot. Hello, Soaring community. Great to have you join us today. Normally, Chuck would be chatting with you, but he has temporarily lost his voice, so he has asked me to tell you about this exciting episode we have lined up for you. Today, we head to the 36th World Gliding Championship in Montluçon, France, as Chuck interviews one of the pilots who competed in this year's event. All eyes were on France, since the Worlds in Germany was canceled this year. Our guest pilot, Daniel Sazen, shares his recent soaring adventure that starts in New Jersey as he heads across the Atlantic to fly in one of the biggest contests of his soaring career. Flying Simon also returns for another segment of Simon Says on this episode as he returns from the National Junior Competition in the Netherlands. He has been there before, but this time as a coach. So if you're ready, let's launch episode 102. You know, our sponsors mean a lot to us, and one of those important sponsors is Aerox Aviation Oxygen Systems. They are number one in portable and engineered oxygen systems and your source for FAA-approved oxygen mask and portable systems. Aerox recently introduced the Aerox Pro 2 Plus Flight Bag Portable Oxygen System. This thing is small, lightweight, and it is super simple to use. The Pro 2 Plus is perfect for that occasional user who wants the flexibility to access those higher altitudes without having to worry about flying impaired. It's now available at Aerox Distributors and, of course, at Aerox.com. So remember our friends at Aerox, engineered for aviators. Daniel Sazen, how are you doing? Doing wonderful. How are you, Chuck? I'm doing great. Welcome back to the podcast. I think the last time we spoke, you were competing in the Club Class Nationals there in Shilhawi, right? Yeah, I think that's that's about right. And uh, you gave me a call, and it was kind of an impromptu thing, wasn't it? <laughs> it, was, uh, it was. Very, very nice. <laughs> it was a lot of fun, but I did put you on the spot. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's right. It was a fun contest. You have had quite an eventful soaring season. So you recently just returned not too long ago from competing in the 36 World Gliding Champions there in Montluçon, France. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it was a very nice contest. Uh, very, you know, very very fair go for us uh, and uh, Montluçon. Uh, France, uh, to have that kind of interesting little squiggly on the sea that uh, makes it sound more like an S, uh, was a very interesting, very interesting sight to fly at. That's for sure. It, uh, you know, certainly not what, what I was quite expecting out of the site. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing about it. But before we get into that, we do have a lot of new listeners here on the pod that may not be aware of your aviation journey. So maybe if you can just give me a quick review on how and when you entered the world of soaring. Oh well, I, uh, I've uh, I'm 27 years old, but I've been around soaring since I was about 11. And um, my older brother learned to fly at Blairstown, and I kind of hung around the airport when he was doing that. And I got into gliders. He got into airplanes, and uh, and I stuck around with gliders. And kind of here I am. And uh, along the way, I got into uh, flying cross country and uh, you know the soaring side of things. And, you know, got into competition flying, and that uh, has been a, a very fun, fruitful run of sorts. Uh, there's been a lot of really interesting flights over the years. I think that's a reasonable introduction. What do you think? I, I believe that's great. <laughs> now, can you walk us through what it takes to get ready for an event like this? I mean, this, not only is it a huge event, but it's in another country. I mean, this had to have been a lot of work for you just to get there. Yeah. What was that journey like? Well, and I'd also I'd like to add too that uh, 
the logistics in this particular event were even trickier by virtue of all this the the COVID situation uh, occurring. Because, like for example, uh, the other event at Stendhal in uh, Germany, the other classes got canceled this year, unfortunately. Uh, so there was only one of two worlds, and the the result is that you know we for many months we really didn't know if it was going to happen or not, and so a lot of the things that we would do beforehand we weren't able to do. But uh, the kinds of things you need to do to be able to go to an event like this is certainly you know deal with having a vehicle, having a glider, having a crew, and you know and then your own kind of logistics of you know go getting out abroad. And not to mention all the COVID, you know, kind of administrative stuff that we had to deal with. And I also would like to make a note that Colin Mead, who was our captain, did an excellent job in helping us with all those things. And uh, did you know he um, really facilitated in kind of in in dealing with all these other hurdles and headaches that uh, would have otherwise been you know kind of really complicated the the process for us. Do you transport a glider there? Do you fly something that's already there? How did that work? So one of our team members uh, transported his GS3 over, and you know that worked out very nicely for him. Um, certainly, some people do that, but uh, particularly in club class, which is the class that I've flown in quite a bunch, the gliders to rent are considerably less expensive than shipping a glider across. And not to mention the fact that I don't have a club class glider of my own, <laughs> so that it, that's, <laughs> right. a, that's a moot point. But uh, but even given it's it's just considerably less expensive to, to rent on the spot and to our network of people that we know over the years. So how many days did it actually take to get there? Was it one one long day, or with the COVID and all that, what did you have to go through? Oh, it took us out well. <laughs> so I think I calculated that uh, I had I think seven I think it was seven or eight steps worth of transportation over the span of three days to get from where from Philadelphia to Mondelezone. And so, you know, go by first going to my, you know, parents' house in uh, Brooklyn, dropping off my car. They drive me to the airport. Then I take an airplane over to uh, Paris, at which point I take a train over to uh, a club member that lent me his car. Uh, and uh, then I take the car over to uh, Switzerland to pick up the glider. And from there, I finally get take the, the, the glider over to the airport. So I figured those are, you know, seven distinct steps. And that wow. took a couple days. <laughs> it was a lot of work. And then I had to re- repeat the, in the, repeat it in reverse. Planes, trains, and autom- automobiles. Exactly correct. It's uh, it's it's a lot of work for us to go to the worlds. Uh, the... You know, the Europeans, they typically get to fly their own gliders. They get to set them up all winter and, you know, they get all totally comfortable in them. I mean, it's, it's a really wonderful treat, right. you know. Uh, we don't we don't get that luxury. You know, we, we show up and get there a couple of days before the meet begins. And, you know, you open up the box and <laughs> you hope the thing flies. You know? <laughs> but uh, I was very lucky in that respect. I had a very nice glider. So you arrive, and, so, and then what? I mean, do you have some practice days? How, how did that work out? Yeah, normally. Yeah, normally. It uh, depends on the weather, of course. Um, but uh, basically, JP and I, uh, he was my teammate in club class, and longtime teammates, the fourth time he's flown with me at a, at a, at a Worlds, you know, the previous three in juniors. Um, I mean, we, we've got, we flew together before we we got there so we kind of reviewed our team flying stuff and all this kind of thing so really the only thing we were kind of working out was you know getting the glider uh flying and making sure that all the avionics worked and all these kinds of things you know maybe getting a pattern or two at the airport just to get a good lay of the land and then anything beyond that was a plus in this case i was really compressed with the amount of time that i had i mean i really squeezed out every last, you know, every hour that I could possibly can to go to this meet, but uh, I'm, I've been pretty busy in my PhD work. And so I only got to do one flight before the contest began, but um, that actually still worked out. Okay. I mean, the, the glider uh, flew really, really well. I mean, the glider was really perfectly tuned and it was perfectly tuned for my weight. And so, you know, basically uh, that, you know, the one flight, you know, there were, I had a couple notes as to could just make a couple little tweaks to the electronics and then the glider was completely race ready. So uh, I was very satisfied and very lucky in that respect. And that was thanks to Ross Drake, uh, who is a 
uh, a Kiwi, New Zealander, who uh, works and lives in Switzerland, who restores gliders, and he was the one who rented me uh, this particular HW20, and you know he did just an absolutely fantastic job on it. So I've n- never had a glider that was that perfect and ready to fly, uh, and just no issues. So that uh, you know, I would have liked to have a couple more days just if I had a chance to relax and get to fly around there some more, but. Um, you know, but everything was that that's just the way it had to be. And because the rig was perfect, you know, that that's all it took. That's all it was necessary in this particular event. Wow. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So can you put us in the cockpit now there in France and take us on one of those flights? It can be any of those days <laughs> from the launch until you landed the train, the competition, what type of lift, all that. Yeah, I mean. A lot of the experience flying in Mont Lassone, I mean, that we were very, you know, we use the expression Groundhog Day quite a lot. So <laughs> there were definitely days that were that were better for us, and there were days that were worse. But the the themes across the contest were pretty strong on most of the days. Um, for the most part, uh, Mont Lassone is a, is kind of an, it's in a little bit of a hole of sorts. It's just uh, the the weather wise, and it's just not that strong out there, and different people have different theories, but it, it actually seems to be just a kind of a consistent theme for people flying out in that area. And interestingly, you know, something that I did not expect is you actually have uh, high, like the terrain gets slowly higher and higher the further south and east you go. There's a kind of a volcanic area out there, dead volcanoes. But you would, you know, kind of looking at the lay of the land, looking at the geography, you would expect that the good soaring would be to the south and east because that's where the higher, drier ground is. But that's exactly not what happens out there. Oh, <laughs> that's wow. the to the to the south. Uh, the terrain gets higher, but the cloud base doesn't get any higher. So you really can't fly south. And the the net effect is the you know the area the soaring around Mont Lassone is pretty marginal, and it gets a bit better to the north. But the the trouble is is that yeah, the airspace with um, by little uh, by a city I think uh, called the Vord, you know, really kind of blocks things off, and so you end up having these kind of uh, you can go a little bit north, and then you can sort of run this kind of east-west corridor, or you can go uh, north along the edge of the airspace uh, toward uh, a commonly known glider port called Isudan, and the the weather tends to get a little better out there. However, the trouble. Uh, the challenges is that uh, immediately to the north, uh, the t- where the terrain starts to drop off, uh, it often that that area seemed to be just pretty saturated from a lot of rain, and so, like you 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 could kind of get up around Monlison, and then you would have to go through this weak area to get away, and then and then if you went far enough north, it would get better, and then getting back uh, was always very challenging. Um, and that that's uh, that was a very big theme of this contest. I mean, um, normally, you know, the way you normally think about a final glide, um, and I'm, I'm sure you've experienced some of these, maybe. But uh, you know, if you're if you're flying a racing task, you know, you you know, you really want to kind of, and you're racing other folks, you you know, you you want to get onto final glide as soon as you can and get home. You know, hopefully not take too much of a gamble and come up short. Well. You know, the, the normal experience when you go to most contests, you know, such as the club, club class nationals in Tennessee is, you know, you, you get maybe 300 feet short of someone else, you know, after you, you fly with them for a while, maybe you don't center a thermal so well or something like that. And then you hit the next thermal 300 feet low, right? You have a three knot thermal for your final glide. And then you see them leave and you say, you know, you kind of look up and you kind of grit your teeth a little bit that you, you lost a couple hundred feet. And then, hey, you know, you a minute later, you get him get on final glide and then you go and then you chase him home and you you feel bad about losing a minute you know that was like because you, you that, that was the deal there well monlison is very different <laughs> because the last thermal of the day you it will be 30 feet a minute so and so if things work out for you and you get there 300 feet lower than the other guy <laughs> that's not gonna you know you're gonna spend 10 more minutes in that thermal <laughs> to yeah. get on a marginal final glide <laughs> right. um, however half the time, uh, five minutes in, the bubble is going to give out on you, and you're going to be coming up short and landing uh, landing in a field short of the airport, maybe in the finish sector, but nonetheless low. And uh, and if you're unluckier yet, you'll be landing in a field well short and not even completing the task. Oh, yeah. And the and you know and there were many and like and the final glides were often done from like two thousand feet AGL 
you know, 2,500 feet AGL. I mean, you're, they were just these, it's like, uh, you know, a lot of times we think of a funnel glide where you're going nice and fast and, you know, you're going like 20 miles or something like that here. It, it was more like a, a fully flop, a high jump where you just sort of hop over, you know, kind of flop over the, um, the finish and, uh, and then just kind of plop it on home, you know, and, uh, I've never flown at a site where the funnel glides were that persistently and consistently, you know, challenging to get to, um, because, you know, when you'd be coming in from pretty much any direction, you had to cross, the, you know, you would, it would not get you, you, the, the good, um, terrain or where, you know, you can get reasonable, you know, so like get a reasonable thermal, it would never get you quite, it would never be quite enough to get you home. And so you'd have to go into this miserable low ground, wet ground to be able to find the last thermal. And it always, always was a real challenge at the end of the day. So those are the general themes in terms of how high, I mean, you know, we spent a lot of the contest, I mean, the, you know, we, I spoke a lot in meters, but I'll kind of transition back to Imperial units. Um, 3000 feet felt high out there. I mean, it felt like you were really solidly racing at that time, you know, and we spent a lot of time, uh, down at 2000 feet, even down to 1,800 feet, you know, when you were like, we had a couple times where we got to like 3,500, 4,000 AGL. It's like, man, that's really cooking. <laughs> it's, uh, but, uh, it, it was, uh, you know, the conditions were very weak and also, the notably too the I, we, I, I one theme or one word I used a lot was they were heterogeneous meaning you know typically you know you get to I don't know three four thousand feet five thousand feet and you know you fly around here and you pick up a three knot thermal you pick up a three knot thermal you pick up a three knot thermal and you you know you reasonably expect the next thermal and maybe a couple thereafter are going to be three knots and you're going to say okay you know aside from if you're going to go into some you know really wet ground or you know some really problematic area that you would expect that, you know, the, what the lift was doing is going to be more or less what it's going to do for a little while, you know, yeah. out there, that's, <laughs> you, you never just, be, you, you, you know, you very, very quickly learned that, you know, that as you're climbing up, that you can never depend on, like, you can never count on the next thermal being anywhere. You like, you just, you know, every single time you had to completely reassess the sky more or less. And that was, uh, you know, kind of, a notable theme that it just the the the, the thermals and the terrain uh, they they just shifted around a tremendous amount and yeah you have to be very careful not to let yourself get too you know lulled into a groove because you know one or two or three thermals later you would be find yourself down in the dirt again oh yeah so it was a uh, very very interesting flying. I do want to thank our longtime sponsor of the show. We are so honored to have the support of the Southern California Soaring Academy. They are doing meaningful and almost monthly now nonprofit outreach work with local area veterans and also young people in STEM programs at their top-notch glider port facility located just outside of Los Angeles there in the high desert of Southern California. They also have a fantastic flight school there, and they are continuing to turn out great glider pilots every month. If you'd like to donate to their nonprofit initiatives or learn more about their flight school, please pop over to the website at soaringacademy.org or check them out on Instagram at Soaring Academy. I think I might know the answer to this one, but uh, what was your favorite day of the competition? I won. I uh, I had two very good days. Uh, one day that the answer to that one is the one day that I won. You know, the the one day where I was one <laughs> right. of two people to make it back. And that was certainly very uh, very nice. I, I like to say, you know, given the choice between being lucky and good, I'll take lucky any day. And that was a, a very lucky day for me. Um, <laughs> and, and there was another day I, I came in third. Um, you know, and that was a very nice day. But overall, though, you know, for the most part. You know, I felt pretty good about my flying out there. You know, there was only really one day that the after I uh, there was a land out that basically took me out of the running because I came up a couple hundred feet short on funnel glide and didn't make it home when a lot of other people did. And uh, I can speak to that maybe a little bit later. Um, but you know, the next day I, I I just did not feel like you know it was a miserable blue windy day. And I at one point I just saw felt my my motivation sap out of me. And, you know, and then I landed out much with uh, having done much less distance than I, I should have given. 
So, you know, and then I saw a whole bunch of people went considerably further than I expected. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. And then that got my motivation back into the contest. And the next day, then I won. So that was very nice. nice. Um, but basically, you know, pretty much aside from the, the one day when I got demotivated, <laughs> <it's>, uh, <laughs> um, the, uh, the, I, I felt really good about my flying out there. And there, you know, and there were kind of some very substantial fluctuations in performance. But the thing, it doesn't really convey just how, precise the margins were like you know you, you really don't really often fly in a in where every single foot matters and where you know if you turn left or you turn right in a given when you're entering a thermal or you know like all the, all these little fine nuances and you know and some days you know some like you know you go and make a couple of those decisions and all of a sudden it's worth a couple hundred points right and you know and sometimes it ends up working out for you and sometimes it doesn't but it just the the level of flying that was done out there was just really 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 cool um, and like I really felt honored and I really enjoyed you know engaging in that on a routine basis it just it's it's just amazing that you can fly that precisely and you know and and see all that matter as much as it does you know sure you know it, it's very nice to win a day but it, it also you know but for the most part you know that it's just even going through the 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 grind of it you know and just seeing people like all the time doing so well was just really 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 cool and really really inspiring what well, do you think being a pilot here on the east coast of the united states you know we're used to scraping out those thermals on we don't have those big booming thermals always like they do out west do you think that helped you out um it it certainly did, but I, I mean, but I also would like to make a note that uh, to the to our West Coast friends that you know Tim Taylor had a really good run in this contest, and he's uh, very solidly a West Coast pilot. You know, flies out of Logan, Utah, and he he seemed to really figure this one out. Um, and he had a couple really good days on his own account. So, um, but that being said, though, oh, I mean, I I would say that uh, you know that uh, you know like certainly being comfortable you know kind of flying around in the week helps and and also the, i i honestly the probably be even aside from that the other thing that's really helpful i mean in in these kinds of contests you land out a lot you know i mean you're you you, you can land out and have a really good performance because everyone else lands out <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and you know aside from just learning to thermal well and thermal in weak conditions and things like that just being comfortable you know, picking out a field, you know, find, and making an approach and, and a safe landing and all that, that, you know, I, I, I don't think that if you're really, if you only fly out west and, you know, you, you may very well land out, but you're probably not going to be landing, you know, you're, you're probably going to be landing at an airport, right? Um, it's just a different kind of, it's a different mindset. And, um, yeah, right. you know, it's it's not so much that it's necessarily in all, in all respects harder because it's just you know it's a different pace to it right i mean you're you know like you 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 you, you out west you might spend you know five ten minutes in a thermal and you'll gain five you know five thousand feet right yeah. <laughs> you know out there you'll spend ten minutes in a thermal and you'll gain 500 feet but you know <laughs> yeah. but the thing is is it doesn't matter you know it doesn't matter because you know if everyone else is doing that and, and you can work the the thermal then that's all right um but I, I i think being comfortable landing out and being you know and in being, you know, like, and having done that a bunch, you know, that's certainly something that we do, you know, that happens quite a bit more often out east than it does out west, or at least when it comes to farmers' fields. And I think that's an important part of this contest. So, of course, as glider pilots, we're always looking for new content on soaring. So, for those that are not familiar with your blog, can you talk a bit about that and how we can find it? Yeah, well, I um, I like to write on my blog called the Soaring Economist. The reason it's called that is because I, um, in, you know, I initially envisioned it as kind of the place where I go and write about, you know, theory and especially how, you know, kind of soaring relates to kind of things that we learned about and psychology and economics, behavioral economics, and kind of explored those ideas. And I have done that uh, at length in, in years past. Uh, but I also, uh, I like to go and blog about my flying. And I used to do that on Facebook, but then Facebook is really not a great place to, to put post pictures and write extensive things. So I kind of merged those together and hence, you know, you can go and find my soaring uh, writing and you can find, you know, my, my write-ups on the, about, uh, 
my kind of the daily reports uh, from the contest in on that site. And you know, feel free to go check it out. Uh, go feel free to read it. You know, you could certainly see kind of the the detailed play by play for for all the flying that we did out there. So, Daniel, after a typical day of competing. What was your evenings like? This really doesn't have anything to do with soaring, but you're in another country. So did you get a chance to see the countryside on the ground? So along those lines, actually, you know, the most evenings, the not really. <laughs> and the reason is, is because we, uh, really. <laughs> you know, we, we uh, got back. I mean, we, you know, we, the, the day has lasted quite late. It's just the ways the, the, the kind of the sunset and the time zones were. So, uh, and the fact that summer, so, we had days where we would be landing between six thirty and seven thirty, you know, quite quite often. And by oh, the wow. t- and by the time we broke the glider down and all that, I mean, you know, we were, you know, we were back um, in our, you know, where we lived around nine o'clock, and then you know, go get some food and, and then <laughs> write up the blog report and go to bed, yeah. you know. <laughs> so it was, you know, the evenings yeah. were quite late. Uh, but there were days that we we got to go and do do things, and uh, you know there were rain days, and not many actually, surprisingly. And there was um, a rest day on a non-flyable day after international night, and uh, on those days we certainly took advantage of getting to explore the countryside, which is really beautiful. Was there one particular thing about France that stood out that you really enjoyed? Uh, the, the not one particular thing, right? Because there were many, right? And I've also been to the country a couple times right. beforehand. Uh, so, but in this particular visit, um, the you know the kinds of things that uh, you know were you know very enjoyable, as you know as it were. Uh, I you know I would say the 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 thing that stood out on this trip, right? Uh, you know, we talked about the countryside. Is that you know I've really I've never really been in this kind of uh, you know deeply rural part of France. I mean, you know, France, you know, the, my experience in France was in the past was much more kind of the cities and, uh, or the kind of the, the coastal, more touristy air kind of areas. And so it was really, really interesting. And, uh, you know, to, to see this kind of rolling farmland that you would kind of more experience in uh, the Midwest and, uh, you know, kind of see, and, uh, and it's, you know, so it, you, you know, you could think of like being out in Ohio or something like that. And then, you know, and seeing, uh, periodically all sorts of little castles and little medieval towns and things like that. Right. That's just, uh, <laughs> so that's a, it's a bit of a contrast. Oh, neat. So, yeah. so you were on, I mean, you've been on a few times, but we, we had a main interview and you told your story and I don't think at that time we were doing the lightning round, but so basically, I asked you a question. You can answer it or you can pass. Something we have a little bit of fun with. What do you think? Sure. All right, great. What is the heaviest item in your land out or emergency kit? Uh, I have a couple things in that item and, uh, you know, a couple things there, but uh, they, they all seem to weigh about the same. <laughs> so I, I'm i not so sure. I, I mean, maybe my spot. <laughs> uh, you know, there no, no, nothing is really heavy there. My Swiss Army knife, uh, you know, there's... I kind of have this uh, little Ziploc bag, you know, and it's got <laughs> okay. a bu- bunch of items there. Which extremity gets the coldest for you up there? Hands, feet, or face, or all of the above? Uh, well, the, the 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 right answer is if you dress correctly and you have the right gear, then none of ah, the above. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that uh, that's a, maybe a separate discussion for, you know, winter ridge flying, right? right? Uh, because I, I would say in the absence of my very handy, wonderful uh, electric socks, my feet uh, get the coldest very quickly. Front seat or rear seat? Well, depends on the flying that you want to do, right? Uh, I, I I would say for the vo- most of my flying, is there's only one seat, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> but uh, if uh, but uh, you know most of the two seat flying that I do is is uh, instruction, right, and and coaching and things like that, and I enjoy right. doing this. And, you know, and for that, you know, the, the, the experience is best for the student, you know, for the student out on the front, right? Most of the time. And so right. yep. I, you know, by, vir- so by virtue of making the, you know, the two seat experience, uh, you know, as it's, I, as I intend it, you know, I would most certainly see the, say the backseat, right? The thing that most has your mind preoccupied on flight day morning. The, in the spirit of your question of your of your lighting round, I would say pass. But for the very reason that I the, I think the preoccupied is the wrong word here, right? In, essentially, if you're doing things right uh, on the the morning of a given flight, you should not be preoccupied about anything. And if you are preoccupied about about something, 
then you are doing something wrong. And then, okay. you know, then maybe you should actually be considering about not flying and dealing with whatever that preoccupation is. Oh, I like the answer. Absolutely. Yeah. That's good advice. Outside of any competition, what is your favorite? What is your favorite glider to fly for recreation or cross country? I would answer that is that it depends on what kind of flying you want to do. And I understand that you, you said it's recreational flying, but the thing is, is for me, there's a wide spectrum of, wide, of recreational flying. And I would say my two favorite gliders to fly are, you know, the, the glider that I've been given permanent access to by is uh, the Duck Hawk and the, and the 126, you know, that's in my club. What is your favorite soaring book? Oh, I I would say uh, George Moffat's Winning on the Wind. Nice. That one, you know, it, it, I thought was very enjoyable. What's the coolest soaring-related video or YouTube you've seen lately? I'd have to pass because there's too many to think of. I can't, you know, there I can't, I cannot give you, I can't give you one uh, off the top of my head. There's a lot out there now, which is great for the soaring community. Yeah, we're definitely getting a lot. Yeah, of no, it's wonderful. You're flying around in a place with verdant farmland and gentle rolling hills. You have to land out, slight uphill with a 15-knot tailwind, or would you prefer slight downhill with a 15-knot headwind? You know, my, my true feeling is, well, why would you be in a position where you would have to be dealing with a field like that, right? I mean, you should be thinking about the wind and the terrain and all these kinds of things the whole time. And, you know, why did you box yourself into a corner? But in, in the spirit right. of the question... <laughs> You know, I have to be an instructor. I have to, you know, kind of, uh, kind of hedge my hedge my bets a little bit. Um, and the spirit of the question, you know, if we're assuming, you know, a large field, and we're we're assuming, you know, the, you know, that everything else is held constant in a way that you can frame the question as such. You know, I would err on the side of going uphill with a tailwind. I mean. Look, is there a point when, you know, the field is one degree down and it's pretty soft and, you know, and then, and, you know, the headwind will be, will do better? Probably. Slope is something that I, is my primary concern in looking at a field and the wind is my secondary concern. Yes, the question is trying to say, okay, where do they cross over? Right. But I would say that if the slope is reasonably perceptible and, that you you know that that would then I would err on the side of trying to trying to land up slope. Emergency, you have two options: jump out with a parachute or land in a lake. Uh, when it's warm, I would certainly land in a lake, no question. Um, but like you know, when when it, when it gets cold, like in the winter, um, particularly in a remote area, you know, even in early, even in early spring or most of spring, really. Like until 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 it gets pretty warm, yeah. Um, especially if you're in a in a remote area where there's no people around, you know, you're you may very well die of hypothermia, well before you know you get help. So that that's the context I've thought up a lot about it about. Uh, you know, now if it's reason, you know, but most of the time when people fly is typically warm. I would certainly say land in a lake as opposed to pulling the parachute. I mean, the your the lake is big enough. And, you know, you, you think you have a very good chance of getting out and all that kind of thing. And, you know, there's – Lake is a very controllable landing. If looking for good lift, would you rather follow a raven, a vulture, a hawk, or an eagle? Eagle, most certainly. No question. Bucket hat, cap, bandana, or stocking cap? Um, I have a soft cap that has a, a shorter brim. And uh, no, and certainly no button at the top, um, and it's a hat that ha that can also put on a kind of a I think it's called it a neck skirt, so it keeps my neck from getting burned. Fifteen meter, eighteen meter, or twenty five meters. Fifteen. Vintage gliders, metal or wood? Uh, is the question metal or wood, or is it vintage metal or wood? Well, if it's a vintage glider, would you prefer metal or wood? Doesn't matter. The the material of the glider really doesn't doesn't change all that much. I mean, I've flown quite a bit in 126s. I, I've flown in a K13 once, so that's a wooden glider. Um, but the, 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 you know, the, I don't think the material really strongly drives, you know, whether, you know, the, the glider is worth flying or not, other than if it's in, you know, it's a nice glider and it's worth, you know, worth flying. Vario sound in sync or quiet? Oh, definitely. Uh, yeah, the Vario sound in sync, no question. You get a lot of information from that. Uh, you know the even with the stand, I mean, like new variometers, they have a special they have the, the netto tones and all this kind of stuff, which is great. Um, and people kind of really configure that. But even with the standard one, 
um, you can differentiate in the, you know, if it's negative two or negative one or negative 0.05, right? And that, you know, if you get used to listening to the downtone, you can tell if you're in consistent good air or not. But uh, even even in the absence of kind of running the energy, so to speak, um, you know, even if you're just talking about climb and glide, that as you approach a thermal, right, and even if you hit the sink on the edge of it, you know, and the variometer plummets, and then as as you start entering the thermal, right, and you see can kind of traverse the gradient, it goes boop, and then it goes beep, 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 you know, and all that, right? But that initial transition, uh, you know, gives you um, a lot of information. So rather, and you know, so you're you're already a step or two ahead as you hit the lift. Whereas if you uh, only have um, the uptone, you know, then you're, you know, that you're, 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 you start responding to things already on the back foot. I want to take a minute and thank and tell you about our newest sponsor, Wings and Wheels. They've been serving the soaring and sport aviation community for more than 30 years now. They have the largest and most comprehensive inventory of sailplanes and soaring supplies in the U.S. Nearly everything you find on their site is in stock and ready for same-day shipping. They're proud to be an exclusive American representative for HPH LTD, manufacturer of the finest quality sailplanes. The HPH Twin Shark is the newest 20-meter two-place sailplane on the market. Their staff has thousands of hours of flying experience in gliders and airplanes, staffed by Adam, Kelly, Julie, and Sean. You can bet a friendly voice will answer when you call. They're located in Eagle, Idaho in their new commercial building with warehouse built to their specifications. And that was completed this year. Whether shipping domestic or international, your soaring-related supply list is covered. They would love for you to come and visit the next time you're in the Boise area. You can check them out on wingsandwheels.com. We're super excited to have them on the pod. Spoilers on turn to final, open or closed? Uh, depends on how you've set up your approach, right? Right. I, I know that uh, there are people out there that strongly advocate against it, and they advocate against it because it increases uh, the stall speed, uh, you know, of the glider, and that that's a source of concern. However, yep. um, in choosing your approach speed, you know, you, you you know that that should be easily accounted for. Um, where I normally fly, uh, because we. Um, have you know a fair amount of obstacles and trees and you know and have a kind of a tricky approach you know you want a pretty steep approach and you know you're the notion you know so on base you know on base and and final you have a fair you know fair you know half to two thirds to three quarter and sometimes full spoiler for a little bit to get over the the last obstacle and so you know you're the notion of closing the spoilers on base and then opening them up again on final um you know, it's certainly doable, but I, I don't view that as being necessary. And I'm very comfortable, and I very often will, you know, maintain spoilers through the base to final turn. the The kind of the fundamental point is is that if you have good coordination and if you choose the pro an appropriate airspeed, then it really shouldn't matter. Um, and you know, I I I understand where people come from there, and I can I understand in places where it's big and flat. Uh, that and where people do lower energy approaches just because they can. I mean, you can enter at five, six hundred feet in a place that, uh, you know, is big, wide, and open. And I can understand in those kinds of scenarios, especially if a person miscalculates a little bit, that you, you know, that that could be good guidance. But uh, where we fly, you know, we very routinely will do base and final, you know, with with a fair amount of spoiler. Last time you looked at the compass, uh, I mean. My glider doesn't have one, <laughs> so uh, I, I'll answer that question a little bit of a different way. Actually, the last time I looked for a compass, actually, I, no, actually, I can answer that question exactly. The last time I looked for a compass uh, was in summer of 2012, and uh, and if I went and looked back in my logbook, I can give you the exact day <laughs> nice. because it was Ron Schwartz's glider 428 in. Uh, when I went to Texas, we were flying as a team out there and, you know, and so we took off, you know, I took off and I sort of figured that, you know, this big flat expanse, it's the first time I was out of the Midwest that, uh, in Midlothian, Texas, that, uh, it would be very nice to have a compass, right. And to kind of, kind of get a, get a sense of my, my direction. And I remember very distinctly looking at the panel and scanning it back and forth a couple of times and like, man, Ron Schwartz does not have a compass. <laughs> Who would have thought, you know?
So actually, yeah. So actually, very distinctly, that was you know. Now they know. I mean, I had a GPS and all that sort of thing, yeah. so I really didn't need it. But uh, that was the last time I looked for a compass in uh, in a glider. Gatorade or water in summer flights? I mean, Gatorade. Um, I, I think it's. I, I, I tend to do the electrolyte push before I fly, especially in contests, um, and after I land. But uh, when I'm flying, it's just water. And then I think I think most of that probably has to do with that. Uh, my preferred uh, drinking vessel is my Camelback, and if you use if you use Gatorade in that, then it's going to get really clogged up and nasty. Yeah, exactly. So you stop at a gas station on your way to the glider port. Do people ever ask what's in the trailer? And if so, do you mess with them and say it's an alligator or something else, or do you say it's a glider? <laughs> <laughs> uh well uh no i mean i i've had a number of really interesting encounters like that actually it also depends on what kind of trailer you have if you have a 126 it's <laughs> very a nice open trailer i mean people can tell exactly what they're looking at right, right. uh well minus yeah. the engine part right but uh it's it's actually uh, the, the 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 fun one there is when you're driving along and i notice that every third vehicle notices the the glider like most people are so zoned out and uh, you know oblivious that <laughs> right. you know you because you know you, you, you like, as you get bored you know driving these long distances you kind of look over your shoulder right and you like and you just watch these people yeah. hunched over their steering wheel right and then every you know every third yeah. car you'd see the kids in the back you know like you know doing this mime like look there's an airplane over there like this is so amazing this is so cool and you know which is really funny but, but that's mostly a 126 thing you know people you know with uh, the enclosed yeah. trailers they don't they don't seem to notice as much but um you know, uh, I, I had an interesting uh, encounter like that with the trailer, you know, when I was uh, driving out in the middle of nowhere in Utah. And so, you know, I was driving this uh, national park out there and after uh, a contest out there. And, um, you know, this is a place where you see a head-on car like maybe once every 10 minutes, right? It's very remote. Right. And so, <laughs> you know, and um, I remember stopping at, you know, one of these little overlooks of sorts and there was a, uh, you know, this, uh, you know, rented car and a couple and they're looking at me, they're looking at the car and they're looking at the, you know, the trailer and kind of did this a couple of times. And finally they just couldn't take it anymore. And so they finally, so, you know, they, they just, you know, the fellow asked me in this German accent, you know, you know, what, what you know, what you hauling out there? Because it's just the last thing you would expect. It's like a psychedelic thing, you know, like <laughs> how's this thing just mysteriously <laughs> just appeared out of nowhere in uh, the middle of the desert, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, you know, and then, you know, and then I just kind of kick into gear and I open up the trailer and I pull out the Yellow three and they you know and spend twenty minutes explaining you know all the things about soaring and how you can go you know he told me he's from Berlin and so he can go and told him that there's many glider clubs oh, out nice. there you should try it out and all this sort of thing you know so yeah you know, you definitely encounter some interesting folks along the way but uh, it always it's you know you, you kind of determine if they're worthy enough of opening up the clamshell or not <laughs> if they're really worthy you pull out the glider fuselage yeah gin and tonic. Corona beer, craft IPA, red wine, white wine, scotch, or iced tea? Uh, before or after flying? Or none of these. <laughs> before or after flying? <laughs> after flying, yes. Very important. Uh, yeah. Well, um, you know, the what I would say, you know, it's either it's going to be a yingling porter. That's going to be my, my, drink, my drink of choice. Um, in the absence of that, it's going to be some other kind of porter. In the absence of that, it's going to be a red wine. So nice. How about you? The Yangling from Pottsville, PA. Indeed, right? indeed. I would go for the Yangling. Yeah. Well, and then you know, like I like the Black and Town, Definitely. you know. But I realized that you know, I like the you know, I like the Lager. I like the Black and Tan more, and I like the Porter even more. And I reckon it's you know, the Black and Tan. It's the Porter that's driving the liking, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So one more, steak, salmon, fried chicken, or garden salad? Well, depends on the day, I suppose, you know. It's uh, all of the, you know, or, uh, you know, and uh, on some days it's uh, the, the salad and some of the other days it's all the above, right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you know, I was going to say with regards to food, at, uh, you know, the, like after, after flying in these uh, long days, you know, I, I like I would, uh, you know, in France, uh, they didn't, um, you know, like they, they, their, their portion sizes are not quite the same as out of the States, you know, and, uh, but I, you know, and I, I, I had a common, um, 
statement, which was to the effect of, if the question is food, the answer is yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so that's, uh, I, I think that's they bring a, up the menu uh, and you say yes. And uh, I think, you know, I think that, well, you know, and these are kind of buffet thing, not, you know, the, where they like only give you like little portions of food, right. You know, where they kind of hand it over to you. The, right. They say, would you like this or would you like this? And, yeah. you know, or like, would you like, you know, it's like, yes, <laughs> just give me it all. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, Daniel, that was fun. Thank you for hanging out with us on the podcast. Of course. It's been nice pleasure. catching up with you and hearing about your competition there in france my pleasure always you know fun. me i'll be checking in with you again of course you know and find uh, out find out what you're up to you know always happy to help what's it look like in the future uh how far in the future uh this season is 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 that it for you or are you just gonna do a little bit of soaring or any more competitions oh no 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 i uh no uh well competitions um no that that's over um but uh, soaring wise, I mean, more or less every weekend I'm at the airport. Uh, right. I will, you know, I mean, competition wise, uh, it's not not so much for the contest, but just to go up to the meet. Uh, you know, I, I may come up to to Massa for a weekend and fly with JP Stewart somewhere, um, and then you know, and certainly and going into the winter, you know, the the ridge season kicks in, and that's always fun. But uh, you know, I mean. Basically, so long as it's flyable, I fly, man, <laughs> and we fly all year. Other than you know when it gets really cold and you know really snowed in or things like that. Yeah, exactly. All right, Daniel, have a good one. We will catch up with you soon. Sure, it's a, always a pleasure, Chuck. Always a pleasure. I have some exciting news, especially for you Condor pilots out there. We are glad to have our sponsor, Just Soaring, back with a couple of updates about their Glider Sim Pro, a sailplane simulator cockpit for Condor Soaring. Their website is all new and now has a couple of videos to look at, updated product pictures and specs, and even a facts section to help answer some of your questions. If you follow the Soaring Academy on Instagram, you've probably seen one of the first production units in operation there at Crystal Airport, and so far it's a big hit with their students and instructors. Just Soaring is also proud to be the lead sponsor of the first ever FAI-sanctioned eSports glider race. That's right, the Sailplane World Grand Prix is coming in September. The winning pilot gets a Glider Sim Pro. You'll be seeing lots more of their glider sim rigs across the U.S. and the rest of the world in the coming months. So check them out at JustSoaring.com on the web or Just.Soaring on Instagram. We are excited to bring you another new segment, Simon Says from Flying Simon. If you haven't already, make sure you check out Flying Simon's YouTube channel. Lots of good stuff on it. So take it away, Simon. I just came back from coaching at the National Juniors competition in the Netherlands, and it was a lot of fun. It is a very relaxed competition that so many pilots fly as their first competition, and me included. I was there six years ago, so it was quite nice to return as a coach. The format of the competition is as follows. The tasks are usually shorter than they would be for competitions for novices. And in the morning, there's a presentation from someone giving information about a specific subject in gliding. For example, choosing your starting time, thermaling better, or doing your final glide. And then next to this, there's also two coaches flying in the air with the competitors to support from the air as well. This was one of my tasks, flying along with the competitors in my LS4. And it was really interesting to become a coach. Not only did I have to refresh my knowledge on McCready theory because I had to give a presentation on that, I also had to change my way of flying. Normally when you see someone low you think, well great, that's someone I already got in the bag. But now when somebody is low, you think, oh how am I going to save this person? And most of the times I ended up pulling air brakes to get next to them and then hope to help them get back up, which was quite exhausting, but also a lot of fun. Also, when you become a coach, you have to look critically at your own flying and think of the things that have helped you the most. And what I realized then is that something that has helped me most is something that, that most glider pilots wouldn't name as something critical, at least not the experienced ones, because they're already so comfortable. And it is 
to become comfortable in your glider. When you haven't done any, any competitions, you just have to find out what works for you. For example, what is your best seating position? What kind of food do you like to eat during flying? Do you drink? What do you like to drink? How do you pee? These are all questions that are overlooked so many times. And I would say the most important one of these is to get comfortable after you had a stressful situation. So one of the things I would do when I just started was to cramp up. So if it was really low, I would cramp up in the hopes that that would give me a better thermal. But once I got back up, that cramp wouldn't stop. So nowadays I always reward myself if I get back from low altitude. For example, by eating a cookie or singing a song. And nowadays this has become a routine, but back in the days, it's so important to get comfortable in your glider. So next time you sit in the cockpit, try and ask yourself, am I sitting comfortable? Do I have everything that I want to have with me? And is there any way I can improve my situation? I'm sure it will help your flying. Thank you, Simon. And thank you all for hanging out with us for this episode. It's been fun chatting with you all. So until next time, stay healthy, stay safe, and happy soaring. If you would like to say hi and let us know where you are enjoying the podcast, we would love to hear from you. If you are a glider pilot and want to share your aviation journey, contact us at chuck at soaringthesky.com or send us a message on our website at soaringthesky.com and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next time for another soaring adventure here on Soaring the Sky, a Glider Pilots podcast. Soaring the Sky is written and produced by Chuck Fulton, co-producer Mitch Thompson. Original music for the podcast was written and produced by Kim Spangler. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton. Voiceover work was done by Michelle Perez.